As we come to the end of our study in 2 Timothy, in the very last chapter, there is a repetition of phrase that is quite significant. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul said to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. And then in verse 21, make every effort to come to me before winter. It is the same Greek word that is used in both verses that is translated with a phrase. It has the concept of what you do, do quickly, do it with speed, do it with focus and energy. It's the same word used in chapter 2, verse 15. That is, do your very best to handle the word of God accurately. And now Paul uses it again. The mighty apostle is desperate to see young Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 4, he said, I long to see you even as I recall your tears so that I might be filled with joy. Now think about how tight this relationship is, how close and endearing. Paul said, I'm longing to see you. He uses a similar term in chapter 4, verse 8, when he talks about all of those who long or love the appearing of Christ. And by the way, these two things are not incompatible. This longing to see our Savior come and this longing to be with our deepest friends. For God Almighty has ordained in the source of his people not just the divine source which is uh, so comforting and so needed but humans around us. We need one another. And Paul's relationship with Timothy was very human. Longing for him to come. We also notice that it's very tender. Paul says, I'm longing to see you as I recall your tears. This is chapter 1, verse 4. Probably the tears that Timothy shed when they said their goodbyes. And maybe they didn't know they were final goodbyes. The Apostle Paul did shed tears with the leaders of the church at Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. Acts 20 tells us, on the shore and on the beach they knelt and prayed and wept because they knew this would be the last time they would see the apostle. But it was a spiritual relationship as well because we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul calls Timothy my true son in the faith. If you go back in the history of the apostle Paul when he came to Lystra, Timothy's hometown, to preach the gospel, he was stoned by the people and they, would dry, they drug him out of the city and left him for dead. The, the stoning of people would often happen with large stones, putting someone's head upon a stone and then throwing the large stone upon the head of the person. It was a form of Jewish execution. But Paul didn't die, and maybe it was Timothy who came to help him. Maybe it was Timothy, newly converted, who came to help his father in the faith. And I can imagine him wiping away the, the bleeding wounds and washing his face and taking him home to his family where his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice would lovingly care for him. You see, a friendship forged in the fire is a friendship never forgotten. And these guys are tight. And Paul desperately, desperately 
wants to see his friend. A very human father so badly wanting to see his son. So notice in this chapter, he says, come. Verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. Verse 11, pick up John Mark on the way, but come. And verse 13, pick up the books and my coat when you come, but come. And then he says in verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. By the way, that last phrase was probably written with the hand of the Apostle Paul himself. We read in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul says, I write this greeting in my own hand, which is my distinguishing mark in all of my letters. This is how I write. So he dictates the bulk of the letter to someone who has a steadier hand than he, but at the end, he signs it himself and maybe says the last few words, like, can't you see it? <laughs> in the shaky hand, Timothy. If you didn't get this before, let me say it again. Come before winter. Why come before winter? Well, in that region of the country in that day, winter, when it arrived in the Mediterranean, shut down all sea voyage. Their navigational systems were primitive and prevented them from safely venturing out. It was too dangerous and those who tried often became stories of those who shouldn't. If Timothy waits until winter, he'll have to wait till spring. And if Timothy waits till spring, most likely Paul will be gone, right? He's the one who said a few verses earlier, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Come before winter, Paul says, or it will be too late. Come before winter or never. That's the famous line of an old preacher by the name of Clarence E. McCartney. And it's an interesting story. Clarence McCartney in 1914 became the pastor of the Arch Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. A young man a gifted preacher. He wanted to reach the medical students nearby his church, and so he sent out cards to urge them to come to a special meeting for young people, and many came that Sunday night. It was October 10, 1915. And his text to that group of young people as well as to his congregation was this. Come before winter. He used this text from the Apostle Paul in his urgent plea for Timothy to come. It was a sermon about opportunities that now we have, but if not taken, soon will be lost. Come before winter or never, he repeated throughout the sermon. The people in the congregation liked it so much they said, hey, why don't you preach that again? And he did. For 40 years straight. I've had people say to me, never preach that sermon again. But <laughs> no one has ever said, would you do that for 40 years? 
He actually moved in 1927 to the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They had heard about the sermon and they wanted to hear it, so he continued. And his ministry in Philly and his ministry in Pittsburgh together show that he preached the sermon for 40 years. His personal secretary, Edith Thompson, said he preached it every October with one exception. And it is safe to say, counting other places, he preached that one sermon, come before winter, 60 times. He would preach it to standing room only crowds. People had heard about it and wanted to come back. It is perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached by an American pastor. And someone as well said it is also the most plagiarized sermon (laughs) in all of America. I will do my best not to plagiarize today. But I am going to borrow McCartney's thought. That there is a sense in which this verse speaks to us about things which must be done today or they will never be done. Paul's words to Timothy compel us to think about the things in our life which must be done now or never. Think of the category of the urgency in our relationship with other people. The people around us, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors. There is a sense in which this verse says we need to do things for them now or never. By the way, the first time that McCartney preached this sermon, a young medical student student by the name of Arnott Walker was deeply touched by it. He walked out into the dark night of Philadelphia in 1915 and made his way down the street on Arch Street to the boarding house where he was staying. He picked up a magazine and tried to read it, but somehow the text kept sounding in his ears. That theme, now or never, before winter or never. And he decided that he'd better write a yellow, uh, write, a, uh, write a letter to his mother and mail it. He hadn't talked with her for a long time, and she lived across the state of Pennsylvania in the northwestern corner. He wrote the letter, walked out in the dark of night on that Sunday night, mailed it in the corner mailbox so that it would be in the post by morning. A few days later, he was given a yellow envelope that came from Western Union, a telegram. And it simply said, come home, mother is dying. He took a train from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh and then another train to the northwest uh, corner near his home and his brother met him there at the train station and drove him to the farm. He quickly ran up the stairs just in time to see his mother smile and say her last few words before she died. But underneath her pillow was that letter her son sent just a few days before. The family said that letter was her greatest joy other than the promises of God. That letter was her greatest joy in her dying days. There's some things that if we don't do before winter, they'll never be done and we'll live with regret. 
By the way, the whole idea of winter reminds us that God created the seasons, and the seasons tell us that life is passing quickly. The book of Genesis, chapter 1, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and the days and the years. Our lives are made up of days which turn into years, which into seasons which turn into years. God is the one who created the calendar and marks our time. Spring with its hope, summer with its warmth, autumn with its beauty, and winter with its cold. Now I know there's a beauty in winter, but at this age I would just soon pass it by. <laughs> Things born in spring, mature in summer, fade in autumn, and die in winter. How's that for an optimistic view of the season coming before us? My favorite is autumn. I think it's the most beautiful of them all, but it also seems to be the shortest. I could stand winter for a month, spring for two, summer for three or four, but give me autumn for the rest of the year. Quoting McCartney, there are golden opportunities which lie open before us on this autumn Sunday, he preached in October, that by next fall will forever be shut. There are voices speaking to us today, which a year from now will be forever silent. What we do, we must do today. Now, did Timothy arrive before winter? Did he pick up John Mark and the parchments and the coat? We can only imagine because the Bible doesn't tell us. I can imagine that Timothy got the letter and said, man, I'm off. He had a replacement, Trophimus, Paul says in 2 Timothy. He'll replace you in Ephesus. Now you make your way. And so Timothy did. That long journey from Ephesus, he traveled north uh, what is now the western coast of Turkey until he finally came to Troas. That's probably where he picked up the coat and picked up um, with Carpus, the, the coat and the books, and then sailed past the Greek island of Samothrace to Neapolis, which is that port city in Macedonia. And then he got on the Agnatian Way, which goes all the way west across Macedonia, and then finally sails across the Adriatic until he arrives in Italy, and then he takes the Appian Way all across Italy to the western coast where Rome is and finds Paul. Imagine he did all of that. Paul was warmed by the coat and warmed by the friendship. If John Mark made it, then there was John Mark and Luke, and of course, Timothy. But at some day, some fateful day, Paul had to walk out of Rome down to his place of execution, which traditionally is south of the city of Rome, near the pyramid of Cestius. And maybe Timothy was there watching it all from a distance, much like the crucifixion of Christ, afraid to get too close lest they be identified with a criminal. And there Paul lost his earthly life, but Paul received his heavenly crown. And maybe Timothy was there to help him during those last moments. But what if he didn't make it? 
What if he said to himself, you know, I, I just have too many things to do. I'd love to be there, Paul. But, hey, I'm a pastor. I've got to take care of things. And when I get done with these things, then I'll come. And so he makes his way down to the port, only to, to be told the season for sailing is over. And then he must linger through the long winter. The sailing season that didn't exist was from November to March. He had to wait till April. And did he then take the first boat or did he get word that Paul was already gone? But whatever, if, Paul, if Timothy didn't make it, knowing how, how urgent Paul wanted him to be there, I can only imagine that he lived with great regret. Well-intentioned people often live with numerous regrets. The story of Thomas Carlyle is a story I've used before. I find no other story that hits me so hard with this concept of regret, of opportunities lost. Thomas Carlyle, the famous essayist and Involved in government and many other things. Very famous. His wife, Jane Welch, had suddenly taken ill. And Thomas kept on his work. And she stayed in her room battling her disease. And she finally died. When she died, Thomas said, the light has gone out. But oh, how he regretted that his writing and business had kept him away. And perhaps the saddest sentence in all of the English language can be found in the words of Thomas Carlyle. In his diary, he said, oh, oh, that I had yet five minutes by your side that I might tell you all. That I would tell you that you are dearest to me and always have been. To say that while you were near. And not to wait until you are far away and death has swept you away when it is too late to say. What might have been, what might have been, the saddest line of word and pen, tis too late to make amends. What might have been, well-intentioned people like you and me often live with numerous regrets. Because we don't sense that there is a winter coming and what must be done for others must be done today. Clarence McCartney said when preaching this sermon in his old church in Philadelphia, if the columns of this historic church could cry out and the beams of tinder, tinder, timber should answer, what a story they could tell of those who were not far from the kingdom of God. But tonight are far from it. Because when God said today, they said tomorrow. Is there a relationship you need to mend? Do it now. Forgiveness you need to ask. Do it before winter. Someone you need to thank. Someone you need to speak to about Christ. Something in your relationships that you know right now gnaws at your soul and conscience. Do it now. Before winter comes. And it's too late. 
There is a second division when I think of this urgency in relationships, and it is our relationship with God. Although that is not clearly mentioned here in the text, and both Paul and Timothy are believers, Paul has written elsewhere, like in 2 Corinthians, some very strong words about acting today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What is it to receive God's grace in vain? That is to be offered it and to refuse it. For he says, taken from Isaiah 49, In the time of my favor I heard you. In the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And some of you, dear people, have been coming to South for years. And when you hear the gospel preached, it may warm your heart. But you've never turned from your sins. To trust Christ. This may be one of those moments of God when he is speaking to you. Today is the day of salvation. Or as Catherine read so well from Hebrews chapter 3. So the Holy Spirit says today. If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tried me for 40 years. It's interesting that Jehovah speaks in the Old Testament, Psalm 95, where this is found, and it's attributed to the Holy Spirit because indeed the Trinity is one. Later on in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, See to it then, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God when grace is offered. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And if you read the whole passage, the word today I think is mentioned four times. Today. Do it today. Do it now. J.A. Alexander wrote this poem. There is a time I know not when, a place I know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and God's wrath. The difference may be today or tomorrow. It has been said that the heart, like soil, has its favorable seasons. There's a season for molding, for shaping. I can remember years ago going to Greenfield Village, and I'm sure many of you have, to watch the glass blower do his fantastic art. I don't understand how he do it, does it, except I know that he's got to get the glass very, very hot. And then he begins to mold it. And then he molds it again. And if there's an imperfection, he puts it in the fire and molds it again. But he must shape that goblet before it cools. Because once it cools, it's too late. 
When the Spirit of God in mercy awakes our conscience and by His grace bids us come, when we feel a sense of sorrow for our sins, that's when our heart is moldable. And to resist the Spirit time after time again will one day cross that boundary line unseen, as Alexander said, from God's patience to God's wrath. This is your hour of opportunity for the chains of sin, the bondage of the devil to be broken, and if not now, those chains may bind you forever because God says in Genesis 6, my spirit will not always put up with you. My spirit will not always strive with man. When the Holy Spirit invites people to Christ, he never says tomorrow. He always says today. David Jeremiah said, always remember that the word today belongs to God. It is his word and the word tomorrow belongs to the devil. There's an amazing story about this in the Old Testament. You remember it well, I'm sure. When God was taking his people out of Egypt and the ten plagues came upon the Egyptians and Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no way. Time and time again, his heart seemed to weaken and then he would rebel. Do you remember the plague of the frogs? Let my people go, God said in Exodus 8. Pharaoh said, no. Moses said, all right, then your whole country will be plagued with frogs. They'll fill the Nile River. They'll come up into your palace and into your bedroom and into your bed in all the houses of your officials and all the houses of your people. I can't sleep with slimy things. And it happened. They were everywhere. So Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away and I'll let you go and sacrifice. Moses says to Pharaoh, I will give you the honor of setting the time. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. <laughs> you idiot. Why not now? Someone preached a sermon from this text entitled, Another Night with the Frogs. But unbelief is insane and says things like, tomorrow, I'll get saved tomorrow. When Paul was preaching in the trials that he had before he was taken to Rome, the book of Acts chapter 24, Paul was talking with the governor Felix about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. And Felix was afraid and said, that's enough. That's enough for now. Leave me. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Procrastination is a killer, spiritually speaking. Or in Acts 26, as Paul's brought up again, this time before King Agrippa, and he's talking about the prophets, and he says, you know, King Agrippa, you know about this. I know you know about the prophets. And King Agrippa said, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Or as the old authorized version has it, the king said to Paul, 
you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost persuaded. You ever heard that phrase? It comes from this text and was written into a, an amazing song by Philip Bliss. Almost persuaded now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go spirit, go your way. Come back another day on the alcohol. Almost is but to fail. Almost will not prevail. Sad, sad the bitter wail. Almost is lost. Be now persuaded, O sinner, here. Be now persuaded, Jesus is near. His voice is pleading still. Turn now with heart and will. Peace your spirit fill. O turn today. Pharaoh said no, Felix said later, King Agrippa said, who do you think you are to try to persuade me to be a Christian? Those are all the devil's words of tomorrow. If you've never closed with Christ, which simply means you've never realized that you're a sinner, confess your sin to him, and by faith receive Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. To be almost persuaded is to be lost. These words are backed up by common sense. Experience tells us we don't have time. Conscience yells at us. Scripture promises us. The Holy Spirit, the, the souls of just men made perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ himself say, come, come to me now. Come before winter. McCartney ended his sermon with these words, come before the leaves fall and the snow flies. Come before your heart is cold and desire wanes. Your life is over and all opportunity is lost. And you stand before God to give an account of your time on earth and of the grace he has offered you. And you have to say to him, I did not The wooings of Jesus are clear. All that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And in Matthew 11, come unto me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon yourself. Learn of me, I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest from the burden of sin. Rest from an angry, troubled conscience. Rest from the thought of eternal punishment. Rest to know you're a child of God if you come to Christ. But John records the words of Jesus in John 5. You might diligently study the scriptures because in them you think you possess eternal life, but these scriptures talk about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. You refuse that you might have life. Come before winter or never. There was an old rabbi who used to tell his people, repent the day before you die. His people said to him, Rabbi, we do not know the day of our death. He said then, Repent today. 
Let's pray. Seems like some soul to say, Go, Spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. Is there someone here who has never trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Who would say, Pastor, I need to do it today. I need to do it now. Right where you sit, your heart to God's, no one looking around, you can say, Lord Jesus, forgive me and save me. And an honest prayer like that will save your soul. You'll be a child of God. And find rest in Him. Or maybe you are a believer. And as we often do, put things off that must be done today. Will you in your heart say, by God's grace, I'll do it. I'll go to that neighbor. I'll go to that family member and say, I'm sorry. Or thank you. Or do you know Christ? I'll mend that broken relationship as best I can. I'll do it today. Remember, today is God's word. Tomorrow is the devil's. Oh, Father, I pray, wake up our souls. By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.